the leader of the European Space Agency, and much more, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome to the travel show that takes you to the final frontier. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with the first of several great conversations I recorded at the annual Space Symposium in Colorado Springs, Colorado. We'll meet the Director General of ESA, Jan Werner, and that agency's chief scientist, Bernard Foyne, will return to Planetary Radio. Bill Nye has just returned from Houston to share his excitement about an accomplishment by SpaceX and the announcement by that company that it is planning a Mars mission. Later we'll find out with Bruce Betts what a psychopomp is and why it became part of the weekly space trivia contest. You're wondering why the piano sonata number 14 has faded up under my voice, as well you might. Not that anyone ever needs an excuse to play Beethoven, but it just happens that this sublime music provides the soundtrack for something special we want to talk to senior editor Emily Lakdawalla about. You'll find her April 28th blog post at planetary.org. This is one of those opportunities that we have to uh, sort of uh, integrate art with science. That has to do with these animations you've just posted. Tell us about them. Yeah, these are produced by a Serbian visual artist who based them on real data, on Clementine image data showing the coloration of the surface of the moon, and on uh, Japanese Kaguya data showing the topography of the surface of the moon. And he rendered this beautiful slow animation of the phases of the lunar near side. You need both the color and the topography because the moon's topography is fairly significant. And so you can see the shapes of all the craters evolving on the Terminator as it slowly sweeps across the moon all the way across for the entire sequence of lunar phases. It's really quite lovely. And anybody who doesn't have the full eight minutes for the hauntingly beautiful uh, long version of this, there's a quick one that is also set to music. There's a quick one that is also set to music, but it doesn't show the same side of the moon. So I saw this animation and I knew that it was based on a global data set, that it wasn't just confined to the near side of the moon. And so I asked him, could you do the same thing for the far side? And he agreed and said absolutely he could. And so he produced an animation. This one isn't tweened. It doesn't have additional frames manufactured in between the ones that he rendered. So it runs a lot faster. But still, it's it's very cool to see what the phases of the moon would look like if we gazed upon its far side instead of the near side. This also gave you the opportunity to talk a little bit about the features of the far side. The features on the far side are a lot less noticeable than the features on the near side because for reasons that scientists still debate about, there aren't that many maria on the far side of the moon. The maria, the the dark spots that give us the man in the moon or the rabbit in the moon or whatever different cultures (laughs) see. On the far side, there's really not a lot on the waxing surface of the moon, except you begin to see this dark stain for the South Pole Aitken Basin as it gets toward full. Only in the waning moon do you begin to see a couple of dark maria that look like holes drilled into the lunar surface. It's a very different world from the one that we usually see from the surface of Earth. Thank you for sharing it with us, Emily. My pleasure, Matt. And we will talk to you again next week. She is the senior editor for the Planetary Society, our planetary evangelist, a contributing editor as well to Sky and Telescope magazine. Bill Nye, the science guy, is the CEO of the Planetary Society. Bill, I hear you picked up something for the mantle from uh, Rotary, the Rotary National Award for Space Achievement. Yes, I got the Space Communicator Award. It was very cool. Charles Alachi got the big award, and uh, Charlie Bolden, head of NASA, was there. Many astronauts. 
it was in Houston, and uh, they've been doing this for, I guess, since the 1987. Charles Alachi, of course, the uh, the outgoing director of uh, JPL. Of the Jet Propulsion Lab, yeah, he's a great guy, and he was really, uh, he was choked up. It was really a cool mm. moment, really cool. Can we turn to SpaceX? Yeah, speaking of cool moments, <laughs> yeah, first of all, they landed on um, a mobile platform, which looks a lot like a barge. Yeah, don't call uh, it a barge. <laughs> no, I shan't. Uh, out there at sea, and it's very cool. So they carry a little extra rocket fuel that allows this thing to land on its tail. The first stage is reusable, or that's the goal. It's really a, a cool idea, spectacular accomplishment. Matt, on top of that, SpaceX announced they're going to go to Mars with one of their Dragon capsules, the Red Dragon. They're not going to have any people in it, but they say they're going to land there in the year 2018. It's extremely exciting. I mean, a commercial company on its own now is prepared to send what is at least a human-capable capsule to Mars. I mean, this is mind-blowing. It's fantastic. Now, So notice that this is how you would want governments to operate in the model of Columbus and Magellan and probably Ptolemy. The government goes out there first, Lewis and Clark, and maps the place, and then other people, other organizations come along later. SpaceX says they're going to adhere to the traditions and requirements of planetary protection. They're going to do all they have to do to keep from contaminating the Martian environment. These are complicated things that add cost, and I won't be shocked if it doesn't go in 2018, if it slips an orbital opportunity and has to go in 2020, but even so... It's so exploration forward. It's so exciting. It's really a cool time. Cool times indeed. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Matt. That's the CEO of the Planetary Society, Bill Nye, the science guy. We go now to uh, Space Symposium, where uh, he was active, had a panel with some great people, and we will talk with two leaders of the European Space Agency. The conferences I attend are usually focused on space science. Space Symposium is different. Each spring, it takes over the sprawling, gorgeous Broadmoor Resort, nestled against the foothills of the Rocky Mountains in Colorado Springs, Colorado. The neckties and other business attire you don't see at science conferences are nearly required at this gathering, you also see lots of military uniforms, and they are not just worn by members of the U.S. military. After all, the Space Foundation, which puts on the symposium, says it is the premier global, commercial, civil, military, and emergent space conference. They are almost certainly correct. The heads of most of the world's space agencies attend... All the major and nearly all the lesser aerospace companies are there. You are likely to rub shoulders with generals, members of Congress, NASA officials, and thousands of corporate executives doing what corporate executives do. So why was I there? Partly to accompany the boss, but mostly because of the outstanding opportunity presented by the symposium to talk with people I wanted to get on planetary radio. And then there were individuals I didn't dream of getting to interview— like Mohammed Nasser al-Ababi. He is Director General of the United Arab Emirates Space Agency, a relatively new organization that recently announced plans for a Mars mission. Dr. al-Ababi had a surprise for me. Well, it's a pleasure, you know, as I mentioned to you, I listen to, uh, you know, planetary uh, society uh, every week, especially when I exercise. 
<laughs> and uh, especially, you know, the science guy. Well, we are honored to hear that. Now, probably it's, a, it's, a, it's a worth to mention that UAE now stepped in in, in space science through its uh, Mars mission. Uh, it has uh, science unique objectives that was well coordinated with the international exploration uh, scientists. Uh, when we decided to go to Mars, we went to that group of scientists and we asked how can we help? What are the major questions that you need to solve that we can put instruments in our Mars mission? And that the, the goal of that mission is actually is just to con contribute to the mankind and to uh, improve our and expand our knowledge about our solar system. And the outcome of that uh, mission will be shared with the International uh, Space Society to better understand what happened to Mars. Uh, by the way, our mission is an orbiter that will be launched in 2020. It's the first Arab and Islamic mission. Uh, it's called the Hope. There's a, a story behind the Hope. It's uh, the goal is to inspire and attract young people to STEM education uh, because we do believe that space is the one of the bridge for better future. It's also important for our region and our young people, not only in UAE but in the Middle East, to see that through science and technology, the region can be well positioned and contribute uh, to uh, share its responsibility towards mankind challenges. We are proud of that and we are committed to, to deliver that project. And also it will inspire another young, um, uh, another emerging space nation to step in to share the journey to space with other nations. Mohammed Nasser Al-Ababi, Director General of the United Arab Emirates Space Agency. It wasn't long before I talked with another Director General, Jan Werner is to the European Space Agency what Charles Bolden is to NASA. He runs the place. When I caught him, he had just finished moderating a unique town hall discussion about his and ESA's proposal for a so-called moon village. Also at the wide-open event was ESA's chief scientist, Bernard Foyne. When Bernard last joined us, it was to talk about ESA's brilliantly successful Smart One lunar mission, that tested many space technologies, including ion propulsion. The three of us talked as other enthusiastic conversations continued around us in the town hall meeting room. You'll hear Jan Werner first. Thank you, first of all, for joining us on Planetary Radio. Yeah, thank you, because uh, we would like to communicate about our idea to have a permanent settlement on the moon. I absolutely want to speak of that because it is an exciting and inspiring concept. You were on stage with all of those other, your colleagues, other heads of agencies. There was a great deal of talk about the need for greater collaboration, and you made a very good point about ESA. ESA is international. So ESA is already 22 member states from Europe plus uh, Canada as a corporate state. So whenever there is a discussion about international collaboration, we can always say we are doing it day by day. Bernard, the state of space science in ESA, in the European community, seems to be a lot of exciting things going on. Yes, we have uh, made a lot of progress in science of the universe, science of the solar system, science of the Earth, but also the science that you can conduct on board the International Space Station that prepares future endeavors of uh, human and robotic exploration. So we have uh, a series of uh, missions where uh, Europe has made uh, some first, but also has worked with uh, strong international partners, the uh, US and uh, other countries, 
to address some of the important questions. Uh, so how the universe was uh, uh, made, uh, how galaxies, solar system formed, are there other worlds? And also in our solar system, is there another place where you can find uh, life? But also with uh, human spaceflight, is there other places where you could bring life? I wish we had time to review all of the missions you mentioned in that session with Bill Nye and Amy Meinzer. But just a couple of highlights. Rosetta, you have made history with this mission. Clearly we have made history because it was the first rendezvous of a comet and the first time when we deployed a lander on the nucleus of a comet. And so it was really a technological challenge. We had also a lander so built by a space agency that was deployed by ESA with a very complicated operation. And uh, we were able to make some measurements that address some of the important questions. So how Comet can tell us about the origin of the solar system, what are the ingredients that are in uh, comets in terms of water, organics, that could be ingredients uh, for life. ExoMars, it's uh, well on the way to uh, do some very interesting things, including the second attempt by Europe to put a lander on the surface. The first attempt was successful. We only had never a communication with the lander afterwards, but it landed. Uh, that was Beagle 2, of course. Yes, that was Beagle 2. Now we are going uh, again to, the, to Mars with ExoMars, looking for life or something like uh, life on Mars. So uh, the first mission, which is now on its way, uh, will have also a landing demonstrator, a test case for the lander, but it has especially also some uh, instruments on board to measure the trace gases to look into the atmosphere atmosphere of uh, Mars in detail, whether there is something like what we know coming from uh, life. So this is step number one. Step number two will be the second uh, ExoMars mission where we will have a rover on board which will land and which has a the possibility to drill holes uh, into the surface of Mars uh, two meter deep to look whether we find something like life over there because uh, the situation of uh, Mars was in the past quite similar to that on Earth. So uh, there is some chance that we will find something. But we build on the legacy of what you have done on previous mission like Mars Express mm -hmm. where uh, we had a, a suite of instruments, high cameras, spectrometer where we have been able to, for instance, to reconstruct the water history of Mars. We have been also able to detect, for the first time, subsurface ice. We have been uh, also to look at the condition for the disappearance of the uh, atmosphere. So we have, um, uh, in the scientific community and the instrument building uh, communities, we have made um, a number of discoveries that prepare us for the next step, which is to look how Mars was habitable and to look of some of the biomarkers, mm. either in the gas or also uh, under the surface. Just one other mission before we move on. And sadly, it is one that really very few people in my country, uh, America, know about, and that's Herschel. You made some very interesting comments about it in that panel. Well, Herschel first, uh, from a technology point of view, is the largest telescope in space. Three bigger than meter, Hubble. Bigger than Hubble, and it was built by uh, European uh, industry. And it uh, also has studied the, the cold universe, and you can pierce through the dense clouds uh, for instance, f for star-forming regions, we have seen also the inventory of the gas in the interstellar medium with a lot of uh, compounds. Some of them are relevant for uh, ingredients for, uh, for, for life. But we have also uh, studied uh, uh, other galaxies. We have uh, studied also the distance of the universe. It's a project that has generated a lot of new discoveries, which have been also uh, shared with the international community. 
chief scientist for the European Space Agency, Bernard Foyne. Bernard and ESA Director General Jan Werner will have more to share after our break. This is Planetary Radio. This is Robert Picardo. I've been a member of the Planetary Society since my Star Trek Voyager days. You may have even heard me on several episodes of Planetary Radio. Now I'm proud to be the newest member of the Board of Directors. I'll be able to do even more to help the Society achieve its goals for space exploration across our solar system and beyond. You can join me in this exciting quest. The journey starts at planetary.org. I'll see you there. Do you know what your favorite presidential candidate thinks about space exploration? Hi, I'm Casey Dreyer, the Planetary Society's Director of Space Policy. You can learn that answer and what all the other candidates think at planetary.org slash election 2016. You know what? We could use your help. If you find anything we've missed, you can let us know. It's all at planetary.org slash election 2016. Thank you. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society, and I've got more of my conversation with European Space Agency Director General Jan Werner and ESA's Chief Scientist Bernard Foing. We talked at the 32nd Space Symposium last month in Colorado Springs. Jan, you surprised me when you said that the entire budget for space science, I hope I have this right, in ESA, is the equivalent of about half a billion dollars. It seems that Europe is getting a lot for its investment. Yes, I think we are efficient. Uh, we have per year uh, more or less a stable amount of money for, uh, for space science, which is uh, what we call a mandatory program. So all member states have to pay for that. All. There is, uh, they cannot escape from that. And this makes the science budget a very stable budget over years. So we are sometimes slow in our development, but we can do something. And so our plans are now reaching uh, far beyond 2035 already. And sometimes we, are, we have some very nice firsts, but I would like to come back to Rosetta because uh, with Rosetta we had scientifically, we had big results. So we know now that uh, the water which we found on uh, this comet is not, has, is not the same as the water on Earth. Uh, so we, you can produce water out of hydrogen and uh, oxygen, but you can do it also out of deuterium and uh, mm-hmm. oxygen. And the relation between the two is quite different to that one we have on Earth. So there are some new open questions. Uh, and another thing which comes from Rosetta, because we always ask, what is the return of investment on the Earth? Uh, on board of Rosetta is a camera uh, which can make a difference between different shades of grey. Uh, and this camera was this technology when it was developed is now used on Earth to detect forest fires because it looks above the, f- the forest and if it sees something grey coming out it can detect whether it's uh, smoke or vapor or what it is. So we have also this return, direct return uh, on Earth even from a totally scientific oriented mission mandatory science program, but there's also a lot of science needed in the community that underpins the exploitation of data for Earth observations. Uh, even uh, there is a medicine science uh, conducted on board the space station. And also, we have this technology transfer program, mm. which encourages uh, entrepreneurs to make use of some technologies that were developed by for space, but also for Earth benefit. And so we have started to create a network of space business incubators where you know, people with ideas and entrepreneurship can uh, uh, exploit some of the technology they want to have made for really down-to-earth benefit. 
I think our audience is very aware of the key role that ESA and the individual European partners have played in the International Space Station. The aspect of human spaceflight I want to address is, at this moment, the inspirational side. Uh, there was a uh, mention earlier today from your UK colleague about how uh, Tim Peake, the British astronaut, has not electrified... British astronaut. He is not, not, he is not a British astronaut. He is a European astronaut of British accent or British nationality. Uh, that's very important for us uh, as an understanding. It's right. Tim Peake is doing a great job, as the other uh, astronauts as well. Uh, Tim Peake made a very big wave of inspiration in the UK, but also in other member states of ESA. And this is what I'm always trying to uh, support, that the astronauts are really European astronauts, and they, are, they can inspire people in all the different uh, member states of ESA very well. And what we need really at these days is inspiration, uh, for the future. We have to give the, the youth the feeling that it makes sense to dream, that dreams can be realized. And I mean, I'm always for return of investment in, in products and, and processes. I'm happy with that. But at the same time, we should look to more these societal effects. If we can inspire young people and fascinate young people, then they are motivated to create the future. We can just prepare it. They have to do it then. Let's now then get into what may be the most inspirational thing, and it was the topic of this town hall that you hosted in the last few minutes here at Space Symposium. This concept of a moon village, a lunar village, which you said it's not a project yet, but it is something that has received great attention around the world, including here in the U.S. Yeah, in fact, um, I was surprised that the attention was so huge. Um, I got always different requests. The first thing was I got some uh, emails uh, asking whether one can be the mayor of that village. <laughs> and I had to explain that what I mean with village is a different thing. It's not uh, some houses, a church and a city hall. But the, the idea of a village is an analogy to an earth village, where an earth village is where people are coming together with different interests, different capabilities, and then they form a community. And this I copied to the moon and said, okay, let's have different interested organizations, either private or public, to put their interests together on one place over there to uh, combine their uh, capabilities and then to have really something what is called a village, a moon village then. And we heard in this session a lot of reasons why we should do this and also what might happen if, if we go there. Did, you, did it achieve what you were hoping for? Yes, it was, a, it was an experiment. I called it a jam session, which is known from jazz, so that it's not a presentation from my side, but that the people should give their input to it uh, to make it even better. And I got a lot of different inputs, uh, ranging from how to finance uh, such an activity to legal aspects, how to, what about uh, the rights to use then material on the moon, uh, to some very practical uh, technological aspects and also scientific ideas. So it was really a broad things I could uh, listen and now we will take care that all of these are considered. In the village we will have all type of professions to support it. So you will need uh, okay, um, house builders, you will need uh, uh, scientists that will uh, study this place, the moon, which tell us about our own earth, a place where we can place telescope to uh, observe the universe, also a place where you can learn how to live off the land in another uh, planet. But uh, we need also other profession, uh, humanities, uh, all 
type of uh, uh, community that makes a village. Do you know the phrase, uh, it connected in this country with a certain presidential candidate? Yeah, it takes a village uh, <laughs> to educate the child. And perhaps it takes a lunar village or a moon village. Yeah, yeah might be. So we are ready. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Okay, thank you. Got Bruce Betts on the line. He is the Director of Science and Technology for the Planetary Society, who uh, joins us every week for What's Up. We start with uh, the Mercury transit occurring on May 9th. Mercury transits in front of the sun over a period of several hours, appearing as a small dot moving across the sun. Best way to observe it is a telescope with proper solar filters so you don't fry your eyes out. Or you can uh, watch, I'm sure a lot of solar telescope sites will have it online. And then just on the horizon and already looking awfully cool is Mars. Mars is at opposition, so opposite side of the Earth from the sun on May 22nd, and it's growing in brightness. It is right now as bright as the brightest star in the sky, Sirius, but looking quite reddish instead of bluish like Sirius. You will find it rising in the east around 10 p.m. and then up uh, after that looking like a bright reddish orangish star, brighter than the nearby star that's also red uh, called Antares. And also in that same neck of the woods is yellowish Saturn, which is significantly dimmer at this point. On to this week in space history. It was 55 years ago, 1961, Alan Shepard became the first American in space. That's a great uh, landmark there, and that's getting some attention this week in the news. Richly deserved. We move on, but something special, right? Yeah, you remember the Possum Kingdom Ramblers? How could I forget something called the Possum Kingdom, much less Ramblers? I, I think it shook up my dogs. They heard the word possum and they started going nuts. <laughs> uh, yes, well, I forgot that they had other little random space fact intros for us. Here's one of them now. We wrote a song about a random space fact. It's a very short song. Some fun. <laughs> that is that is very fun. Thank you very much for that. The U.S. Revolutionary War, it seems like just yesterday. Well, if you're on Pluto, <laughs> it seems like less than a year ago, because one Pluto year ago, which would be 1768, the U.S. didn't exist, and the American colonies belonged to the U.K. <laughs> so one Plutonian year later, we're good friends with England again. <laughs> We are. In fact, it probably only, you know, it only took more like a Saturnian or maybe Uranian year to get oh, yeah. there. yeah. I like this. <laughs> well, well, I'll get you more in the future. It'll, it'll be good. Thank you. All right. On to our trivia contest. And I asked you about the trans-Neptunian object Orcus. What is the name of, tra of Orcus's moon? How do we do... Really good response to this, as usual nowadays. We got a first-time winner, if you got it right. Chosen by Random.org was Hudson Ansley, longtime listener but first-time winner, out of Bloomfield, New Jersey. He says, Vanth. It actually goes on from there, officially 90482 Orcus 1, Vanth. Goes by Van with his friends. <laughs> Named after, he adds... The winged Etruscan psychopomp who guides the souls of the dead to the underworld. Thank you, Hudson. Psychopomp. 
when you stop being the director of science and technology, that should be your new title. Psychopomp! That's <laughs> the name of my new band. I know that. <laughs> wow. Okay. This really explains that there is good reason why I've always been terrified by the names Orcus and Vanth. Now we know I'm um, God of the Underworld and uh, Etruscan and, uh, and more terrifyingly, the Psychopomp. Uh, Bruce Cordell in Covington, Washington, he also got it right with Vanth. He says, by the by, Orcus was also the internal code name we used while designing the fourth edition of Dungeons & Dragons when I worked at Wizards of the Coast. You're a D&D guy, right? I am. That is quite awesome. And I've uh, communicated with, with Bruce Cordell. He's now created a whole new uh, role-playing game called The Strange. And wow. uh, I'm sure we could put an Orcus into that, too. Maybe even a Vanth <laughs> or a Psychopomp. <laughs> Hudson, thank you very much for the entry and congratulations. You are the winner of uh, this week's Planetary Radio t-shirt, a 200-point itelescope.net astronomy account, and a Planetary Society rubber asteroid. Rubber asteroid. <laughs> are we ready to move on? We are. After May 9th, 2016, what is the date of the next Mercury transit of the sun as seen from Earth? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Get us your entry. We'll award some more of those beautiful Tyler Nordgren posters. National Park posters, Night Sky posters, uh, Department of the Exterior posters. I think we have some of those. I'm not sure. The ones he did as if they were posters for national parks on other worlds, which are really clever. Uh, we love those at the Society. Is the Department of the Exterior a cabinet-level position? It is. It is then... Oh, okay. <laughs> TylerNordgren.com is where you can uh, see some of these. We'll have those and an itelescope.net account. And uh, what the heck, we'll throw in an asteroid. How's that? A rubber asteroid. You are uh, a generous man. I am to a fault. You have until Tuesday the 10th this time. That would be Tuesday, May 10th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about Frisbees. Thank you, and good night. Would you believe I have a Frisbee with Bill Nye's face on it right behind me at the moment? I was just giving it to my wife to take to her school. So, uh. <laughs> Whoa, this is, this is so trippy, our connection, separated by these miles, but still connected in Bill Nye Frisbee land. In a kind of weird Frisbee quantum way. And I suppose we should say Frisbee is a trademark of the, is it still the Whammo Corporation? We're really talking about flying discs. <laughs> exactly. And uh, we're done. He's Bruce Betts, the Director of Science and Technology, and soon to be the Psychopomp for the uh, Planetary Society, conducting <laughs> souls to the underworld. <laughs> he does it every week here on What's Up. More from Space Symposium next week when we'll talk with Mark Sarangelo of the Sierra Nevada Corporation about that company's Dream Chaser spacecraft. By the way, I'll be at the Humans to Mars Summit May 17 to 19 in Washington, D.C., with a lot of amazing men and women. You can learn more at h2mexploremars.org or just search for 2016 Humans to Mars. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its mythic members. Josh Doyle created our theme music. I'm Matt Kaplan. Clear skies. Clear skies.